You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Well, it was a, it was a night at the movies that I'll never forget. It's around this time of year, 19 years ago, I was at the late show with my wife Leanne and some friends. The theater was packed to see this highly anticipated film. But I'm not sure that really any of us knew what it was that we would be in for. Because when the lights dimmed, what we saw that night, what unfolded before our eyes, was the most graphic violence I've ever seen on a screen. The title of the movie was The Passion of the Christ. And essentially, it depicted the last few hours of the life of Jesus. The horrific humiliation, torture, and finally the execution that he endured on that final day. The movie was difficult to watch. I've seen it once. I never intend to see it again. Most Bible students would agree, though, that as difficult as it is to see, the film does provide a historically accurate presentation of the crucifixion, of the savage treatment that Jesus suffered through that entire ordeal. The beatings, particularly the scourging that he received at the hands of merciless soldiers, the crown of thorns that was smashed onto his head, the humiliation of being forced to carry a 100-pound beam to which he would be nailed, spikes driven through his hands and his feet, not to mention, of course, the mockery and the derision that he received, and then finally the spear that was driven through his side to ensure his death. All of this was shown in detail. And when the lights came on, I've never experienced anything like this. When the lights came on in that packed theater, it was silent, except for a few people around the room who could be heard sobbing. Now, my purpose in sharing this is not to endorse or critique the movie, but I'll simply say this, that the movie showed in graphic detail what happened to Jesus on that first Good Friday. But my, my primary criticism of the film is that while the what was very clear, precious little was said about why. Why this happened. The what was very clear, but the why was largely neglected. Now, don't misunderstand me. Knowing what happened is very important. It's vital that you know what happened to Jesus on the day that he was crucified. In fact, at the heart of the Christian message is that certain things have happened. And Jesus indeed came into the world. And he indeed died on the cross. And he indeed, praise God, he rose from the dead on that first Easter Sunday. These are factual, historical events without which there is no Christian faith. And you'll hear me in a moment, I will double down on the importance of the what. What is very important when it comes to Good Friday? But just as important is the why. 
Because without knowing why it happened, you'll miss the relevance of those events to you and your life. You'll miss their meaning. You'll miss their significance. And if you miss the meaning and the significance and the relevance, then you miss the message. So you've got to know both. You've got to know what and you've got to know why. In fact, that's what I've called my sermon today. It is, I've called it the what and the why of Good Friday. As we'll look at what happened to Jesus as recorded in Scripture. And then we'll spend some time considering why it happened. Why would God allow for this to happen? Why would Jesus go through with this? Why did Jesus die? That's where we're, that's where we're going today. Now, I, I want you to, to see the what uh, with me. And we're going to read John's account of those events from the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 19. John chapter 19, and if you don't have a Bible with you, just in, the, uh, in front of you, you'll see under the seats, about maybe about every other seat or so, there is a, a Bible there. That's for you to use. Just reach out and grab hold of that, um, or just take one out of the hand of the person sitting next to you, and they can use that other Bible. That's fine. I just want you to see it for yourself, and of course, the Bible app is a great tool as well. If you're using that pew, that pew Bible, the Bible in your chair, it's page 851. Okay, that will just sort of expedite getting there to where we are. John chapter 19. We, we've been in a teaching series called Encountering Jesus. Encountering Jesus in the last days or in the final days of his earthly life. It's a, it's a study we began a few weeks ago where we just sort of went one day at a time through that last week of Jesus' earthly life leading up to the cross. It's a week we call Holy Week, the week in which Jesus died. And we began looking at what happened the first Palm Sunday and then some of the events of Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. And this past Sunday, we were at Thursday. Well, here we are on Friday. It's Friday for us, and it's Friday in our study as well. Of course, the night before, Thursday night, Jesus was arrested and taken to be interrogated at the home of the high priest. Religious leaders, as you recall, were very envious of him and hated him and were determined to have him killed. In the morning, they took him to the Roman governor, Pilate, it's P-I-L-A-T-E, not pilot like piloting an airplane, but pilot. It looks like pilate. And uh, they took him to, to Pilate because Pilate had the authority, the legal authority, as it were, formally, to execute, to put someone to death. And um, so they took him to, they took Jesus to Pilate very, very early Friday morning. Um, it's, in fact, in the ancient world, in, in ancient Rome, it wasn't unusual for business to begin around five o'clock in the morning. If you're not a morning person, then be glad you didn't, you don't, you don't live in ancient Rome. In fact, the business we wrapped up sometimes around noon and uh, the day would begin early. No different, I think, on this day. It was very early in the morning. You recall the religious leaders want very little to do with large masses of crowds, and so the cover of darkness, and they're trying to move swiftly here to get rid of Jesus. Now, they bring Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor, this, and this pagan ruler heard the, the case, examined Jesus, and determined there was no justifiable reason to put him to death. That shouldn't surprise us, because after all, Jesus was holy. And, and even this pagan ruler could see that Jesus had done nothing wrong, certainly nothing of deserving death. But the pressure against him was strong. And the religious leaders had assembled together a mob of people and stirred them up. And this mob was threatening to riot. And, well, for Pilate, he doesn't want word getting back to Caesar that he can't control his region. Because if Caesar ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. So that's what's going on as we begin here in John chapter 19. Notice verse 1. Then Pilate 
took Jesus and flogged him. This was a savage, brutal, bloody beating. Verse 2, And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him with a purple robe. They're mocking him, aren't they? See verse 3, They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again, that is, out to the religious leaders and the crowd. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Then the chief priests and the officers, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not, a friend, uh, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. So in antiquity, you count from six o'clock in the morning to zero hours, so six hours noon. Okay, getting close to within about 40 minutes from now. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. That's an astonishing statement. So, verse 16, he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. That was probably a jab at the religious leaders. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. Verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, 
and for my clothing they cast lots. Now right about here, even if you're new to this text, if you've never read this chapter of Scripture before, you should notice that what John is showing us here is that all these events that are unfolding are no surprise to God. In fact, the opposite. They were prophesied in the Old Testament. It was foretold that these things would happen. So we can see already a clue that whatever the answer is to the why question, why is a legitimate question to ask, and there is an answer. So it says then in the middle of verse 24, so the soldiers did these things. Now notice verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Now this is not to be confused with the wine and myrrh that was offered him on the way to be crucified. The wine and myrrh would have been basically the ancient form of a narcotic, the dull pain. Jesus refused that. But here, this is just, it's a cheap wine that the soldiers would have drank and it's offered to Jesus to in some way quench his thirst. Verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Now let that land on you. You can see again, we've seen that scripture foretold and we wonder this question why. We can see here that there is whatever the answer is, there is purpose. It is finished. What is finished? Well, something that's been planned for. Something now that's just been accomplished. He said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I'll just go over to verse 38 and we'll finish out the chapter. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. Now kids, that sounds like a funny statement, doesn't it? A tomb in which no one had been laid, a grave in which no one had yet been put into. See, in the ancient world, the custom was, was that just as described here, they'd wrap the body in these linens and use all that mix of stuff, that, the spices to, to uh, cover the body, wrap it up, and then they would set the body, they'd put the body in a tomb. And sometime later, maybe a year later, they would come back and then take the bones and put the bones in a big stone box called an ossuary. And they would take the bones, put them in the box, and then the person would be put in their final resting place. Many times their name would be engraved on the side of the stone box. So when he says here, a tomb that had not, where no one had yet been laid, yes, it could be used more than once. That's the idea. So Jesus was laid in a tomb, like a cave. And verse 42 says, So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So loved ones, that's the what of Good Friday. What happened that first Good Friday? Simply this. Jesus died. He's crucified, dead, and buried. 
That's the what of Good Friday. It's important that you understand and know the what. That Jesus did this. It's important because you need to understand that what we have just read here is historical reality. It actually happened. It, it really took place. And you say, well, why, why are you emphasizing this so much? Because it's vital that you see some of the uniqueness and certainly the significance of this Christian message. Many other religions, perhaps most other religions, you could say, maybe all other religions, the way to salvation, whatever, however that may be conceived, the way to salvation is by the person doing things. You do things, you accomplish things, you achieve things. You're, there's the teachings of the, the founder of that religion. You follow them, you do them, and that's the way of salvation. The Christian message is radically different. Whereas in other religions, it's you doing that leads to whatever kind of salvation it is you're after. In the Christian message, it's not your doing, it's the doing of another. It's Jesus doing for you. And the reason the what is so important that I'm so emphasizing this today is for you to see that it's been done. That Jesus came and did it. It's fact. Here's the reality. I think probably lots of, maybe lots of people don't know this. There There is no legit serious historian that would deny the historicity of the person of Jesus Christ or his crucifixion. Lots of debate about who he really was. Certainly lots of debate and discussion and disagreement and antagonism to the message of the Bible. But in terms of the the historicity of Jesus and the fact that he was crucified, no serious historian denies that. It is a fact. It happened. And for Christians, it ought to encourage your heart today that what we believe are, the, the truth we hold to are not merely ideas but things that God has done in history. Jesus did this. He died on the cross. And praise God, on Sundays, we'll see, he arose from the dead. And that's a fact, too. We'll get there, though. This is a historical reality. Dear Christian, you need to hold on to this. You need to recognize this. A few weeks ago, we were, uh, we were in Washington, D.C., and uh, went to a really, really neat place uh, called the Ford's Theater, and, um, and the Ford's Theater is, is a, it's very famous because somebody died or somebody was shot in the Ford's Theater. Anybody know who was shot in the Ford's Theater? Abraham Lincoln. He was shot in the Ford's Theater. So we went into the theater and, uh, and uh, it's been amazingly restored. It's a very old theater, obviously. We went up into actually the theater itself and went over and we could look into the box where Lincoln and his wife were that night where he was shot. And it's kind of a surreal thing to just sort of stand there and like, I'm just like from here to here, I'm just looking in like that. He was right in that box and dude came in with a gun and it was, it changed history. It was a huge historical event. Down the basement in the theater is a museum and they got all kinds of different artifacts down there, including they have a pillow that was on the bed where Lincoln died and the pillow was there and it stained with blood. I know it sounds a little ghoulish, but it's the historian in me is just like, this is, this is amazing. Like, the, these, it's here. 
It happened. And you go out the theater, you go out of the theater building across the street to the, what's called the Peterson House. In those days when Lincoln died, it was a boarding house. They carried him out of the theater and laid him down in a bed, and he was pronounced dead the next morning. So you go and you stand in the room where Abraham Lincoln died. It's a historical reality. It's pretty cool just to, just to go there, like it happened here. Loved ones, listen to me. The death of Jesus is every bit as much verified and true and real as the death of Lincoln. Every bit as much. It really actually happened. Jesus did it for you. So you stand, dear Christian, today in a faith that is not just ideas and concepts, but is facts and accomplishments. When Jesus said, it is finished, he's talking to you and talking to me. What happened on that first Good Friday? Jesus died for real. Crucified, dead, and buried. But why did he do that? That's the question we got to answer now. We got the what, and the what is important. You got to know why. If you don't know why, you won't see its relevance for you. You won't understand its significance. So why is it that Jesus died? Well, let's let Jesus himself help us out as we try to figure this out. Got a verse here I want you to read. This is what Jesus said before he died, sometime before he died. He said this, looking ahead to his crucifixion. <clears throat> excuse me. He said, no one, takes my li- no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Now that's profound, because not only is he prophesying that it's going to happen, but he's also acknowledging that he's very personally intentional about doing it. He's not merely a victim, but actually a full-on participant, an author, you could say, of the events that were to come. He says, I have noticed the authority to lay it down, and I have, praise God, the authority to take it up again. How about another verse? Acts chapter 2. There the apostles tell us Jesus was delivered up according to, notice, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. See, it was planned. It was intentional. So Jesus had a purpose. God had a plan. What was the plan? What was the purpose? At least three things. At least three things. First of all, why did Jesus die? Jesus died to save you. Jesus died to save you. You say, well, to save me from what? To save you from sin and to save you from death. Sin, oftentimes we think of sin as doing bad things. I mean, it is that. But the Bible gives us a deeper explanation understanding what sin is. It includes the bad things we do, but it begins before that. It begins by dishonoring God, not treating him like God. Exodus 20, verse 3, God told Israel, he said, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, that's, that is a commandment that every single one of us have failed in. All of us. You say, well, yeah, I, I love God today. Yeah, you love God today, but you haven't loved him perfectly. You haven't loved him always. You haven't always treated him like God. Jesus said this. He was asked, well, hey, what's the most important commandment? He said, well, here it is. Love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. He says that. Now, sin arises from the fact that we've not done that. We've not done that perfectly. We failed in that. In fact, we've loved other things, other people, other pleasures, other desires, other ambitions more than him. 
we take good things and we make them into ultimate things. And the Bible says that even though we are made for God's glory, we've fallen short of his glory, which means that we haven't treated him like God. He is great and glorious, but we've not dealt with him. We've not treated him as he ought to be treated. We've sinned. And of course, that reality, not treating God like God, works itself in all kinds of shameful things that we've said and done and not done that we should have, that indeed the Bible calls sin. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. So the payout is death. And we think of death in two senses. First of all, physical death. That's the one we're most familiar with. You know the reason that there is death in this world? The reason that most of you know what it is to grieve? Some of you are grieving today. The reason that there is death and grief and sorrow is because of sin. We live in a cursed world, fallen and broken. When our first parents, our first ancestors, Adam and Eve sinned, everything was broken, including us. That's why there's death. But you know, the Bible talks about the second death. Second death is another kind of, it's a spiritual death of separation from God. So we die physically, but we also learn in the Bible that because of sin, we've died spiritually and that we're separated from God. And we have, it has to be that way. God is holy. And he cannot wink at wickedness. There must be justice. He's not a just God if there is injustice. But yet he loves us and cares for us. So, so what, what can be done? Well, for you and I, there's nothing we can do. But praise God, God did something. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why Jesus came. And as we read this story of Jesus dying on the cross, loved one, that's what he was doing that day, was he was taking the death that you and I deserve upon himself so that even though we may indeed die physically, we will live forever truly. We will live now in relationship with him and we'll live forever in heaven with him one day as well because of his death on the cross. That's why Paul says, Christ died for our sins. He took the penalty that I deserved. Peter said that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. He took our sin upon himself on the cross. And that's what's going on here. What's happening here, we're reading about the what, but the why, why is this happening? Well, Jesus was doing this to save you, to save you from sin. It was a powerful picture I came across. Uh, you may remember back in 2019, in Paris, France, the, uh, the cathedral, the Notre Dame Cathedral burned. Remember that? It, it burned. Maybe you remember that news story. And uh, just if you're, if you're a historian and into that, it's just, just a tragedy, you know, something that's 850 some odd years old, uh, going up in flames. It was a tragic thing. And um, the loss was immense. Now, my understanding is I think they're working at rebuilding it. They may be soon to reopening it, from my understanding. But uh, this was, I don't remember who showed me this picture, who pointed this out. I don't recall, but I dug this picture up and found it again this week. And this is a photograph of inside the cathedral after the fire. And you just look at it, it's just heartbreaking. You know, this, all this history and everything. And, and look at, you look real closely, see down here in the bottom, it's all water, right? Water from being, but the, the two most destructive things to buildings is fire and water. And it got both of it, right? The fire that burned it, the water to put it out. And you look at all this, all this old wood and all different kinds of artifacts and stuff like that. It's just in a heap there in the middle. And you know, in some ways, that's kind of a picture of our world, isn't it? We live in a world that is in ruin. 
live in a world where there's a lot of mess. For some of us, we could look at that picture and say, that's kind of a picture of our lives. Right? Some of us this morning, if we're honest, we are a smoldering, hot, swampy mess. When you look around at maybe your relationships, look around at where your mind is at, where your heart is at, your attitude, this is kind of a picture of us. But do you notice in the picture, at the front of that room, they're just above, just emerging above all the wreckage and the, the mess and the, the burnt timber in the water. You notice something there standing, almost shining as it were, in that photograph? Do you see the cross in that picture? I don't remember whoever it was who showed me this picture, but they pointed that out. They're like, well, look, at, look at that picture. Look at all the ruin, but notice at the center of the picture. Notice what shines above the cross is there. And I, you know what? That'll preach. Because this is a picture of really why it is that Jesus died. You and I, our lives, we're that hot, swampy mess there. But Jesus died to save us. And that's what I want you to see this morning. I want you to see in this Good Friday that on that first Good Friday, Jesus came into the world to rescue you and to take your mess of a life and to fix you and to change you and to rescue you out of it, to give you hope and to give you new life. That's why Jesus died. He died to save you. But not only did he die to save you, he also died to change you. He died to change you. He didn't just die to forgive you and then have you go back on the same way you were always living before, but to bring about in your life real, meaningful transformation. Jesus died to save you. Now, I got, I got like 190 some odd favorite verses. Here's one of my favorite verses. I love this verse. Check this out. It's from Peter, 1 Peter 2 and 24. Get a little of this. Talk about Jesus. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So that's what was going on there. Reading John 19, what's going on here? That's what's going on there. Jesus is dying for my sin. He took my sin. He bore my sin in his body in dying on the cross. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That purpose, why, reason, that, notice, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Why did Jesus die? He died to save me. He died to change me. So that I'd be a new person on the in, from the inside out. Dead, the old me, dead to sin, going, going my own way. That person's dead, but now I live to righteousness. I got a new life. How about this verse? Another one of my favorite verses. This is a really good one too. Titus 2 and 14. Jesus gave himself for us to, purpose, reason, why? Jesus gave himself for us to, notice, redeem us from all lawlessness. So he, he wants to rescue you, not only forgive you for the hot mess that you are, but take you out of being the hot mess that you are and to change you, to rescue us from all lawlessness and to, notice, purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, if you're zealous for good works, it means you got a passion for doing what God wants you to do. you got a passion, you've got a heart for doing what Jesus wants you to do. That's not going to happen just by you deciding, I'm going to be different. That happens because Jesus died in order to work in you a supernatural change. Jesus died to bring you into a relationship with God 
whereby now he goes to work, Paul says, to, to get you to want what God wants and to do what God wants. It's a heart change that he works on the inside that bears fruit on the outside. Jesus died to change you, to radically change you. That's one of the many reasons why I'm so, I'm so big on believer's baptism, why we're so big in our church on believer's baptism, because of what it signifies, the picture it shows. When we, we, behind here, if this is your first time visiting, we got a, a baptismal tank. You got to come again sometime and watch people swim in church. It's awesome. <laughs> Back in there, and I've, you've heard me say, if you've been coming here a long time, we uh, sometimes refer to it as both a grave and a birthing suite. Because when you go under the water, the symbolism there is that I have been crucified with Jesus. I've died with Christ, right? I've died to sin. And that old me is dead. And so you go under the water, just like you go under the ground, into the grave, go under the water. But then you come up out of the water. So it's at once a grave, but now it's a birthing suite because now I got a new birth. Jesus talked about being born again. That's what he meant. He meant being given a new life, a new heart. The Holy Spirit, God himself, comes and dwells in us when we trust in Jesus. And the picture of the baptism is I've died and now I'm alive. And not just alive to myself, but alive in Christ with the Spirit of God in me, helping me, working in me, changing me at the level of my affections so that I desire things that God wants me to desire. This is the message of the gospel, that, that Jesus died to save you and he died to change you. We got a group that meets here every uh, Monday night called Hope Group. And uh, I just think, I think more of you need to go to that. And right now they're going through this book called You Can Change. Now listen to the subtitle. God's transforming power for our sinful behavior and negative emotions. You got some sinful behavior and negative emotions that you can't shake or break? You need to go to Hope Group because they're doing a study right now about, about God's transforming power for our sinful behavior and negative emotions. I want to read to you a little bit, okay? Just pretend it's reading time here. This is so good. I just love this. I might get carried away, so just, just hang on here. The title of the chapter here that I'm reading from is called, How Are You Going to Change? There's a good question. Have you despaired of ever changing? Do you think you're a lost cause? Maybe you think it's different for you. Other people can change, but your history or temptations or problems make it different for you. The glorious good news of Jesus is that you and I can change. Part of the problem is we often try to change in the wrong way. It seems our first instinct when we want to change is to do something. Isn't that true? Got to do something. Got to make a list. Got to try harder. We think activity will change us. We want a list of do's and don'ts. In Jesus' day, people thought they could be pure through ceremonial washing. I thought some people, they, they think their solution to change is go have a shower. I'll feel better after a hot shower. Well, you may feel better, but once, but, but once a couple of hours has passed and there's a long lineup at Tim Hortons or you miss your lunch or somebody says something to you or looks at you the wrong way, the shower is over, okay? You smell great, but your attitude stinks. <laughs> today, people can be, can, uh, today it can be spiritual disciplines or a set of laws. I've tried these approaches. I've written out little rituals to perform every morning. I've tried to regulate my, regulate my behavior with lists Many of these things are good in themselves and we'll discover the role they can play in helping us grow in holiness. But our rituals and disciplines can't change us. 
Jesus says this, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, Jesus said. External activities can't change us, Jesus says, the author writes, because sin comes from within, from our hearts. Our rituals might change our behavior for a while, but they can't change our hearts. So they can't bring true, lasting holiness. We need heart change. I read on. Sorry if I'm getting carried away. This is so good. It is God himself who changes us. Other therapies can modify behavior. Drugs can suppress the more extreme symptoms of some problems. But only God can bring true and lasting change. And that's because only God can change our hearts. Jesus changes us on the inside through the Holy Spirit. He transforms, cleanses, and changes us. You see, that's what Peter's saying over here. He died to bring us into a relationship with God where this stuff happens. I read on. I'm almost done. I just got to read a little more. This is so good. This, oh, this is, you'll love this. Listen. Jesus sets us free from the penalty of sin, i.e. death, but Jesus also sets us free from the power of sin, i.e. slavery. We are free to live for God. Telling a slave to be free is to add insult to injury, but telling a liberated slave to be free is an invitation to enjoy his new freedom and privileges. So good, I'll skip over this next part, but okay, let me just read this. I get, you gotta hear this, you'll love this, listen. Transformation is the special work of the Holy Spirit. God chose us to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, 2 Thessalonians 2 and 13. There was, I'll leave you this. This is, I love, love this. Sorry, I'm done. I promise I'm done after I read this. This is so good. Listen, there was a time when labels on electronic toys often said batteries not included. Remember that? Getting the, you, you knew who was a good aunt or uncle in your life when they gave the toy and the batteries for it, right? There was a time when labels on electronic toys often said batteries not included. You opened your long-awaited Christmas present only to find you couldn't make it work. The gospel is a gift that comes with batteries included. God gives us power through the Holy Spirit to make our new life work. Which is a great reminder about the fact that we cannot, you cannot try on Christianity. You can't try it out. I've heard people say that. People say, well, I, I, I tried Christianity. It didn't work. There's too many rules. It's too hard. The problem is, is that we're fooled into thinking that your experiment or trying whatever that looked like was actually trying the real thing. You can't try on Christianity like you can try on some clothes or these shoes. I bought these shoes maybe four months ago. I went into the store, picked them out, put them on. Didn't need but 40 seconds or so walking around the store. I'm like, yep, they fit. They feel good. Right? Buy, buy clothes, everything, got this shirt, try it on. Yep, that works. Buttons aren't too tight. No one's going to get hurt. It works good. I can try it on and feel it. It works with the shoes and the shirt because I've got the actual shoe and the actual shirt on me. But you can't try on Christianity. It is a supernatural transaction that you get when you trust in Jesus. Experiment, trying on Christianity tells me 
that you maybe you tried, you showed up at church, you tried reading the Bible, you tried to sort of go along and do what other people are doing. That's not Christianity. It is, it is when you trust in Jesus, your sins are forgiven, and the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in you and goes to work in you to change your heart. See, some of you have been fooled into thinking that the, the piece of liver you were chewing on was beef. It's not the same thing. Or, or that you, you thought it was a, an apple you're biting into, but it's parsnips. It's not, it's not real. It's not real. You can't just try it on. You, there, you either trust Jesus or you don't. You see? So you tried it on. It was like getting in what you were told and seemed like it was a car, but it's a bicycle. And it was great for a week until all of a sudden you're pedaling uphill. I'm like, this stinks. I thought this, would, I thought this would be like a car. But it's not the real thing. You were maybe told, I'm sorry, you were maybe told that it was a car. You maybe thought it was a car. But it's not. It's a bike. And real Christianity, real Christianity is nothing you can try on. You trust Jesus or you don't. When you trust him, he does this for you. In his death, his death is applied to you and he brings you in a relationship where this happens, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He redeems us, rescues us from lawlessness and pure, goes to work purifying us. That's nothing you can try on. But it is something you can have when you trust him. He died to save you. He died to change you. And change you, he will. And dear Christian, change you, he is. He's working on you. It's so important to see that. My invitation today is to look to the Jesus who died to save you from sin and Satan and yourself and is risen and gives life to you. Look to him with hope. My invitation to you, if you don't yet know him, is to trust him. But don't try him. Don't try him. You'll be fooled. Trust him. Believe on him. Jesus died to save you. Jesus died to change you. Finally, I love this. Jesus died to bring you to God. He died to bring you to God. Here's another one of my favorite verses. Love this. This is such a great verse. Love this. 1 Peter 3.18 I quote it all the time. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Notice that, for what reason? That he might bring us to God. You who are far from God, you who were far from him, he died to bring you from being far to being near. You who once we're separated from God because of sin, he died to remove the barrier so that you can come to God. And it's like, it's like he, came, he comes to you when you trust in him. He comes to you in all your shambles and all your stinking, swampy, hot mess. And he scoops you up in his arms. And he brings you, carries you to God. And he works in your life, making you whole and putting that mess together and cleaning out the stench. But the wonderful thing is that when he brings you to God, he is bringing you home. It's, it's, kids, it's, you, know, you know what your grandparents and the worst time is when it's time to go? 
right? Because grandparents are awesome. They're amazing. They, they're just like, they're like parents, but they're way nicer. <laughs> and there's always that time to go. You're like, I don't, I don't want to go. You know, the wonderful thing is about when Jesus brings you to God is you never have to go because you're home. Jesus died to bring you to God. And that's, I think it's important for us to see because the cross of Christ is not an end in and of itself. It's a means to an end. Jesus died to get the barrier out of the way, to get sin out of the way, and to bring you who are far to bring you near. You see, that's, that's why we want to be forgiven, isn't it? It's so that we can be with God. Think of it this way. Suppose my wife and I were to get into some kind of disagreement, which never happens, never. And suppose it was determined that the disagreement, the problem was me, which I have to confess does happen. And suppose I seek forgiveness from her. What would be a good motive for seeking forgiveness from her? Would it be so that I I wouldn't feel bad anymore? Would it be so that the kids don't see us at odds? Would it be so that there'd be some good loving later? Would it be so that she'll do some nice things for me now? Or so that others will be impressed? No, none of these things. I want forgiveness so we can enjoy each other again and have fellowship together again without a wedge between us. I want forgiveness because I want her. And that's what Jesus has done for you in relation to God is he removes the barrier and brings you to him. The good news of Good Friday is that Jesus died to remove all that stands in the way so that you can have him who truly satisfies. Another one of my favorite verses, Psalm 1611. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus died so that you could come to God and find full and forever satisfaction that is found in him. He died to save us. He died to change us. And he died to bring us to God. Dear friend, will you come to him today? Will you come to him today? The invitation is there. He died to save you, to change you, to bring you to God. Will you come? You say, well, Ross, how do, how do I do that? How do I come to him today? Well, the Bible tells us that we're to believe on him, which means we're to trust in him. It means you're gonna take the, just the full weight of your confidence You, your life, your very soul, and you're going to lay it on Jesus, trust in Jesus. Say, well, well, how how do I do that? Well, you do it by recognizing and believing that what we've read today about him doing, he did. Believing that. And then trusting him to do what the Bible says he will do for all who trust in him. I think a great way to cement that, to, to seal that, is just to talk to him about it. And so I want to lead you in a prayer right now. And if what I'm praying is where you're at, what you're thinking, there's no magic to this prayer, but if you just pray along with me, even quietly where you are, you can express that faith to the Lord, in the Lord in this way. We'll pray, Lord Jesus, I acknowledge that I need you. I've disobeyed you in many ways. I've been far from you. And the reason, the problem, has been me. But I do believe 
that you did what I've read about here today. That you actually died on the cross. And you did that to save me. And then to go to work changing me. And ultimately to bring me to God. Lord Jesus, that's what I want. And right now, as best as I know how, I'm trusting you to do it. I turn away from trying to do good, to be good enough, to trusting you and what you've done already. Please forgive me. Please save me. Please now take my life and make it what you created it to be. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.